1: Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the second part of my recent conversation with author Barry Kester, whose new book is titled Round in Circles, The Story of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up with that episode before listening to this one. Last time, Barry and I focused on the three people at the center of Carousel's creation. Oscar Hammerstein, Richard Rogers, and producer Teresa Helburn, whose vision and obsession it was to turn Fernick Molnar's play Lilium into a musical. Today, Barry takes us behind the scenes of Carousel's rehearsals and its rocky out-of-town tryouts, including its very first performance in New Haven when the show ran more than four hours long. And in the process, we expand our focus to the other key members of Carousel's creative team, especially choreographer Agnes DeMille, all of whom were crucial in helping Rodgers and Hammerstein turn what could have been a disaster into one of the landmark musicals of the golden age of Broadway. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Patron Club members Roger Clarice, Elizabeth Troxler, and Chris Mode. If you would like to support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the podcast about how you too can become a patron. Here we go! Let's actually talk about some of these other members of the team. Agnes DeMille is brought on very early in the process, even though she does not have the warmest relationship with Richard Rogers. Talk a little bit about why they felt she was so important to get on board even before their contract with the Theater Guild is signed and how that played out.
2: Uh, She was brought on board because she was very good at what she did. They loved her work on Oklahoma. And I don't think her relationship with Richard Rodgers, certainly not at that early stage, I don't think it had deteriorated. I think she felt that Rodgers got a little bit full of himself, shall we say, after the success of Oklahoma. But the truth is they were both prickly characters.
1: And she had become even more successful post-Oklahoma on her own.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: She was now one of the major forces in the American theater in a way that she was not when she went into Oklahoma.
2: She wanted to throw her weight around. Richard Rogers wanted to throw his weight around, but he never lost sight of her ability. He knew she was the best person for the job. She had difficult relationships with everybody. She hated Reuben Mamoulian. And in fact, as you will recall from the book, the dance rehearsals took place in a studio 40 blocks away from the theater.
1: And that was on purpose to keep Reuben Mamoulian away from Agnes Mille's rehearsals.
2: Agnes DeMille felt she was underappreciated, both in terms of credit and uh, financially. And eventually, years later, after both Rogers and Hammerstein had died, the family made a settlement with her, and she now gets credit for every production of Carousel as dance originator and a royalty.
1: Before we get to Ruben Mamoulian, let's talk about Agnes DeMille's right-hand person, which is, of course, Trudy Rittman. I have a whole episode about Trudy Rittman, a fascinating, much-neglected figure in the American
2: theater. I'm so delighted to hear you say that. Uh, as soon as we've finished I'm going to have that episode down because I fell in love with Trude Ritman just reading her life story. and I understand, and I hope it's true, that her great niece is writing a biography of her, because it needs to be out there. She's a fascinating character with a fascinating life story. As you know, forced into exile from Germany, she may well have been one of Europe's greatest 20th century composers. She was on track for that. She fled via Holland to the UK, taught at an art school here in Devon, where she was introduced to music for dance went to America met Agnes DeMille worked for the American Ballet Theater, and then was brought in on Carousel. And then her list of musical credits is, is incredible. Worked very, very closely with Frederick Lowe on My Fair Lady score.
1: She's another one who has an ongoing but prickly relationship with Richard Rogers, and he values her so much. She works on every single Richard Rogers show, I believe, post-Carousel.
2: Virtually, yes. And she wrote the entire small house of Uncle Thomas Ballet in The King and I. That's how much he trusted her. Exactly.
1: The episode where I talk about Trudy, there's a quote from him after he sees the ballet for the first time that she and Jerome Robbins had concocted, again, in a rehearsal studio far away from the other rehearsals that were going on. He said, you know, it's supposed to be Rodgers and Hammerstein, not Rodgers and Hammerstein and Rittman. But then he didn't change it. He kept it exactly the way she had written it.
2: Yes, yes. And that was his fear with Agnes de Mille. And perhaps because Agnes de Mille had a much more established record when they were doing carousel, Rogers from time to time felt that she really did want carousel to be Rogers and Hammerstein and DeMille's carousel. And they were not going to let that happen.
1: And she probably did. Yeah. <laughs> What I think it's hard for people to understand now is the impact of Bloomer Girl at the time, because it's a show that's almost entirely forgotten. But at that moment, it was a giant hit show of which Agnes DeMille was largely the star. Yeah.
2: In the library at Lincoln Center, the New York Public Library, there is a video later on, and I refer to this in the book, when relations between the Rodgers and Hammerstein families and Agnes DeMille had been resolved, they recorded Agnes Mr. Mill talking about the dances in Carousel and by way of introduction Mary Rogers says that to See Carousel without Agnes de Mille's dances is like, can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like reading Oliver Twist without Faginoss, something like that. And that's how important the dances were to the story.
1: And ironically, we haven't seen Agnes de Mille's dances in the most significant revival since then, although they're still following her lead, no matter who the choreographer
2: is. That's right. And they are available on YouTube.
1: So now let's talk about Ruben Mamoulian, who becomes the director of the show, much to Agnes's chagrin. Her husband was away in the war. That's right. In World War II, and she writes a letter to him, furious that Mamoulian is going to be the director. Yes,
2: she says in that letter, his direction is about as intelligent as a lamb's or <laughs> the and she yes, says, Namoulian is going to direct. Oh, hell, hell, hell.
1: And so, first of all, what's the nature of their conflict prior to this? Why is she so upset about this?
2: I'm not 100% sure because he wouldn't listen to her, I, I guess. They had just had a bad working relationship. And he fell out with Rogers and Hammerstein after Oklahoma because he engaged a press agent, notwithstanding the fact that the Theatre Guild had a publicity and press agent in which he was claiming all sorts of things, such as he was responsible for the quiet opening of Oklahoma, he was responsible for the casting of John Raitt and Joan Roberts, and much more on on those lines. And Rogers and Hammerstein were furious. They didn't want to use him on Carousel. They wanted, first of all, I think, Elia Kazan, who was doing military service, as was Josh Logan. Mamouyan only got it by default. So
1: he's the third choice at best. At best, yes. And yet they obviously have respect for his talent. They are eager to have him if they can't get the
2: other two. If they can't get the other two, yes, as I say, he got it by default.
1: Which is fascinating in a way, because obviously, and I think you actually quote Mary Rogers again. It's interesting how Mary Rogers has resurfaced in our world so significantly of late. But doesn't she talk about Rogers having the same attitude toward Agnes DeMille as Irving Berlin had toward Ethel Merman?
2: Yes, what was that quote?
1: To the essence of, I'll never work with her again until I need her. Until I need her, yes, that's right. (laughs) <laughs>
2: Which is very Broadway. You've read the book more recently than I <laughs> <laughs>
1: But we end up with this quite high-powered team. And what does Mamoulian bring to the show? Why are they eager to get him in spite of their differences with him? Well,
2: Rogers had worked with Mamoulian a lot in the past. They did the film Love Me Tonight back in the early 30s. And he did a good job on Oklahoma. Again, I guess it's down to their professionalism. They're not going to let personal antagonisms get in the way of having the best man available. And he was available to do the job.
1: And one of the other key members of the team was Don Walker, who became the orchestrator for the show. What did he bring to the project?
2: He brought a great deal. He was not first choice. Roger's go-to orchestrator was Robert Russell Bennett, but he was tied up with another project. So Roger's turned to Don Walker. And as it turned out, it was a tremendous choice. I personally believe that his orchestrations for Carousel are as good, if not better, than any other of the golden era musicals and Walker treated the score of Carousel as he would treat a Puccini opera he likened it to that which for me is interesting because i have always said that Richard Rodgers was Broadway's Puccini in terms of his melodic and harmonic gifts and the Puccini connection with the show in that Molnar turned him down. I I just find that an astonishing comment. He treated the score with so much respect and brought Roger's melodies to the very best that they could be. So I think he had a tremendous impact on this score and many of the others that he did. Fiddler on the Roof, Most Happy Fella, The Music Man, Pajama Game. and so forth. Cabaret.
1: And for Carousel, as you mentioned, he's orchestrating for a much larger orchestra than was typical even of the time of giant orchestras. 39. They had to take seats out of all the theaters out of town and on Broadway in order to fit the orchestra in the pit. Yeah,
2: they did. Yes. You will never see or hear a 39-piece pit orchestra in a musical again, I'm sure.
1: Unfortunately not. When an opera company does it, you may get to hear that. As we go into the rehearsals and the tryouts period, this is a fascinating part of the book, and as often the out-of-town tryout aspect of any story of a musical is, because so much goes on. This is not a show that just works out of the box and is done and is perfect from the beginning. They first open in New Haven. What's the reaction? You alluded to it a minute ago. This show is, first of all, way too long. Yes, that
2: first night ran for four hours, uh, finishing well after midnight act one worked reasonably well but the second was a complete disaster the ballet the response to the ballet which everybody thought was going to be the highlight of the show was totally um, negative and the ballet as I say ran at, a, at about 45 minutes it was telling a very complicated story there was dialogue involved rather than have ballet substitutes they had the actual cast members so the actual Julie the actual Billy involved in the ballet and it just did not work at all. And just to be
1: clear, this is a much
2: more expanded,
1: bigger idea than the ballet that would eventually be in the show and that we come to know. It's not Billy looking back.
2: He was watching this happening in real time en route to heaven.
1: So sort of simultaneous events, his events and the events of what's happening in the world are happening simultaneously.
2: Exactly. The ballet begins with Julie giving birth to Louise on the stage. That's how intricate it was and shows every stage of Louise's development, showing her growing unhappiness, her loneliness, but in a very, very protracted manner.
1: And this was something that DeMille and Hammerstein had worked up closely together.
2: The idea was Hammerstein's and DeMille turned it into a ballet. And yet it just sat there. It went down like a lead balloon.
1: You talk about this meeting after the show, after the opening night. Was it actually that night or was it the next day? I can't remember. It was after that night.
2: They went back to a hotel room. This account is from Agnes DeMille, who obviously was part of it. She says that they retired to a hotel room for sacrifice and cold cuts. So here you are, one o'clock in the morning or something, and you've got all the key participants gathered round. But they were totally professional. They saw what needed to be done. They cut. They knew the ballet had to be cut considerably. There was a very expansive dance after we have a real nice clan bake. Went out, a couple of scenes went out. Agnes DeMille, interestingly, says that a couple of songs were cut, but I could find no evidence, and neither Tet Shapin nor Bruce Pomerhack at Rogers Hammerstein could find any evidence of any songs being cut. Some choruses were trimmed, reprises were trimmed. Mr. God became the star maker. And within two hours, they had sort of fixed it. They had a plan. And over the next few weeks in New Haven and in Boston, Oscar Hammerstein would work through the night rewriting. The cast would rehearse from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. and then go on stage again at 8 p.m. for that night's performance. And bit by bit, it came together.
1: And I love that quote of the production assistant or somebody in that meeting afterwards saying, now I know why these people have hits.
2: Yeah, that was John and the production manager yeah because they were just totally professional there was no special pleading i like that scene none of that if it needed to be cut it was cut
1: don't go away there's more broadway nation right after this quick break Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire,
2: huh?
0: Ah, oh.
1: We've talked a bit about that second act ballet and its challenges, and eventually during the rest of New Haven and then in Boston, it gets trimmed down and rethought, Mm -hmm. moved to a different position as well. Yes. And becomes the ballet that we can still see Agnes DeMille's version of in the movie to a large extent. And becomes a quite notable, renowned element of the show. It's not like they have to take something and just make it kind of work to get on. DeMille is able to reshape it into a show-stopping moment of the show.
2: Yes, as you say, it's moved to a different part of the second act. Billy is now up in heaven and he looks down and sees Louise on just one afternoon.
1: What do I got to do to see her?
2: Just look and wait. The power to see her will come to you. Is that her?
0: That that little girl there with the straw-colored hair?
1: Pity, ain't she? My little girl...
2: Tells him all he needs to know about her mood and how desperately lonely and unloved she is, other than obviously by her mother. Yeah.
1: And do you know if that segment was in the original ballet and just sort of became honed down to that? Or did they reinvent the idea of the ballet as well? I think
2: the whole idea was reinvented, yeah.
1: The opening is also a problem out of town, even though practically from the first meeting of the Gloat Club, the idea of this pantomime opening set to waltzes is already formed in Rodgers and Hammerstein's mind. It becomes much trickier to put it on the stage.
2: Yes, there was a similar prologue to *Lilium*, but the stage notes for *Lilium* cover half a page. It doesn't tell the prior story to the first scene proper in the way that Hammerstein wanted his prologue to. So Hammerstein's prologue actually takes uh, four pages in the script. It was difficult to stage. At first, Agnes de Mille thought that she would get to stage it, although it was not and never intended to be a ballet.
1: Hammerstein sort of notes I thought that was odd that he specifically writes in there this is not a ballet. He does indeed, yeah. And do you think that was with Agnes DeMille in mind when he's writing that?
2: No, 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 not at all. He knew how he wanted it to be. It was action set to music, but not danced. And Ruben Mamoulian just had tremendous difficulty in staging it in a way that all the elements could be seen all over the theatre. And in the end, it was Agnes de Mille who bailed him out effectively. She wrote a whole treatment specifying who should be where, literally at what bar number in the music, and describing the actions that should take place against the relative bar numbers in the score. She
1: laid it out like a dance, even if they weren't going to dance. Yeah,
2: exactly. It needed someone with her capabilities.
1: And there were 70 people on stage,
2: which is mind-boggling for
1: us today. Other than going to an opera, I don't know that I've ever seen 70 people on stage in a
2: theatrical production. One could say that that is a reflection of the power that Rodgers and Hammerstein had post-Oklahoma.
1: Even in a time of big cast and big shows, this was even bigger than anything else. So the show finally comes into New York and it's still mind boggling for us today in the modern world of theater to think that a show came in, it had a dress rehearsal and then it opened the next night. They left
2: Boston on the 15th of April and had that dress rehearsal on the 18th of April, the night before the Broadway opening which is
1: crazy from the way we think of it today. And Rogers is not well.
2: Rogers put his back out. He was dragged up to the hilt. He watched the dress rehearsal from a stretcher in the middle of the stalls.
1: That's a great scene for a
2: movie. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Everybody refers to the dress rehearsal being a disaster, but nobody actually says why it was a disaster. One can only assume you've got an orchestra performing in a pit that's been enlarged. You've got a new stage, different is obviously to New Haven and Boston. But it's all very unfamiliar. One can understand that there being technical issues with a first performance on a new stage.
1: And on top of which, all the stagehands would now be the New York stagehands doing the show for the first time. And the orchestra would be largely the New York musicians also playing the show for the first time in tandem with the cast. So yes. you would think, of course, it's going to be a disaster because you are now having to have a hundred new people learn the show and figure out what to do. Yes. But it's interesting that they don't talk about that's why it was a disaster.
2: (laughs) No, I think the miracle probably is that the actual first night went off as smoothly as it did.
1: And the show becomes
2: a smash, the show becomes a smash. Not an Oklahoma sized smash, but it became a smash. And what was the
1: reception, especially in terms of what Rogers and Hammerstein had set out to do? Were they acknowledged for this innovation they were bringing to it?
2: The critics all gave it a great deal of praise, apart from the one critic you referred to earlier, who said this Oklahoma formula is becoming a bit tired. She was a minority of one. All the critics unanimously raved about it. It won all the. View- awards going it was pre-Tony but it won every award and certainly Rodgers and Hammerstein were delighted with it.
0: My boy Bill I will see that he's named after me I will my boy Bill he'll be tall and as tough as a tree will Bill, like a tree he'll grow with his head held high and his feet planted firm on the ground And you won't see nobody dare to try to boss him or toss him around. No pot-bellied, baggy-eyed bully will boss him around.
1: And I always think it's fascinating to think of Carousel and Oklahoma, I believe, are playing across the street from each other for years.
2: Yes, they are. Oklahoma was at the St. James and Carousel at the Majestic across the street.
1: And the impact of that is, to me, what solidifies the golden age of Broadway. Here are these two powerhouse shows playing across the street from each other for a period of years and dominating the airwaves, dominating all aspects of Broadway and showing this is it. This is how we do it now. You've only got
2: to look at the shows that immediately followed. Irving Berlin did Annie Get Your Gun, Cole Porter, Kiss Me Kate. Then in the early 50s, you had Damn Yankees and Pajama Game. All, yes, very different from what you saw in the 1930s and even the early 1940s. Their impact was enormous.
1: Even the musical comedies had to take on the aspects of the musical play, had to be integrated, had to follow the Rodgers and Hammerstein model. They could no longer be the loosey-goosey musical comedies of the past. They had to have fully drawn characters and all the music needed to come from the story. And amazingly, Irving Berlin and Cole Porter were both able to jump on that bandwagon in spite of not being young and having been almost their entire careers in the kinds of shows of the past.
2: Yes, I think it encouraged other composers or other writing teams to be bold. I mean, I cannot imagine that Lerner and Lowe would have Dared look at Pygmalion and write My Fair Lady had it not been for Oklahoma Carousel and so forth. And then you go on to West Side Story, taking dance even further than Carousel did. It is all this
1: amazing progression. Just one thing leads to the next, which I find so fascinating about it. It evolves. Barry Kester and I will be back in two weeks with the final part of our conversation about his new book, Round in Circles, the story of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Next week, my frequent co-host Albert Evans will join me to celebrate the 100th episode of Broadway Nation, and together we will determine once and for all who was the greatest Broadway star of all time. Don't miss this one.
0: When I have a daughter... stand around in bar rooms oh how i'll boast and blow friends will see me coming and empty all the bar rooms through every door they'll go weary of hearing day after day the same old
1: And now, as promised, here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And in fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the podcast version. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host Albert Evans that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech, that's broadwaynationpodcast.s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t.tech, or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you in advance for your very generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I gotta get ready before she comes.
0: I gotta make certain that she won't be dragged up in slums with a lot of bums like me. sheltered and fed and dressed in the best that money can buy. I never know how to get money, but I